Now, normally, this morning, we would be continuing our series in the Gospel of John. We finished the first 12 verses of chapter 2, in which we saw Jesus transform water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana. What the next story would be that we would normally, on a normal, if there's such a thing, Sunday morning, would be Jesus cleansing the temple, going into uh, the temple with, he makes a, a whip and he goes in there and he takes care of some business. And uh, that's not a Jesus that uh, our society likes to uh, imagine is the Jesus that we worship. But there's the story in the gospel. It's uh, representative of who he is and what he cares about. We are going to be, Lord willing, looking at that story next week. But this morning is not a normal morning. Josiah is going to turn on the overhead. Okay, Josiah. It is a special morning. We are celebrating communion this morning. So I've prepared a shorter message. So you're going to have to listen fast. Microwave message so that we can complete our formal worship time around noon again. I know I've been going over time. I have to cut that back. To keep with our theme of gleaning mess messages from the gospel accounts, uh, we've been going through John, and last week our guest speaker uh, also uh, was in the gospels, and so today we are going to be in the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. For those of you that may be uh, newer to Christianity, I just want to lay some very fundamental background to you. The Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament covers thousands of years, beginning at creation, but mostly telling the story of a particular nation, Israel, whom God has chosen to be the vessel through whom he will bring a Savior into the world. At the close of the Old Testament, which has covered thousands and thousands of years, written by prophets of God, there is about 400 years of silence from God before he sends the promised Savior, the one that he promised on every page of the Old Testament nearly, uh, whom in Jewish uh, uh, wording is called the Messiah, the Mashiach. So he's going to send him into the world to fulfill those ancient promises. So the New Testament begins with four Gospels or four accounts of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, each of them written from a different perspective, each with a different emphasis. The second of these four accounts is the Gospel of Mark. Many scholars believe it was the first written. I think it was probably the second written. It doesn't matter. But uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today. Mark was a, a close friend of the disciple Peter. And Mark took Peter's sermons and he wrote down his Gospel and sent it out so that people would know what the life of Jesus was and, and the message that he was bringing to the world. And so that is where we're going to take our text from today. Mark uh, chapter 10 if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark 10 and beginning in verse 17, we're going to read verses 17 through 22. This is the word of God. Now, as he, that's Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word once again this morning that uh, delivers to us, hands to us, offers to us the truth, the truth of God, the truth. We thank you that it is by your word that we can anchor our lives and that we can go forth from this place where we spend some time together in your word, renewed and refreshed once again in it, that we might be a fountain of living water to those around us. We thank you for this opportunity and we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 17, now, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? There are some indicators in this first verse concerning the character of this rich young ruler as he has come to be known as we look at the other accounts in the other synoptic gospels who is seeking out Jesus in this passage. Now, as we're looking at this rich young ruler, I want you to consider him and I want you to consider yourself to see if there are any parallels between you and this young fellow. But let's consider three things that this one verse tells us about this young man. The first thing is this. He was aware of the ebb and flow of events that were happening in his culture. Jesus' ministry was attracting large numbers of people at this point, and this young man was interested to go and find out what the buzz was all about for himself. The second thing was that he was zealous. Our passage says he came running to Jesus. He wasn't walking or meandering about, thinking he may perhaps come in contact with this new rabbi that was wandering around. No, he found out where Jesus was and he came running to him. And when he caught up to him on the road, it says he knelt before him, showing him an unusually high amount of reverence. This young man obviously learned enough about Jesus to recognize his authority, his power, and his wisdom. He knew there was something special about Jesus. He didn't necessarily know what it was yet, but he knew there was something special about him. And the third thing, and probably the most important thing, is this. He knew he was lacking something. Something was missing in his life. Regardless of his upbringing in the Judaism of the day, the conviction that salvation was earned through a keeping of the law of Moses, 
something in his heart recognized that there must be something more to eternal life than keeping a code of laws. So he asked Jesus, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I'm not sure, but there is a strong implication in this text that this young man had perhaps asked other rabbis the same question and come away unfulfilled, unconvinced that they had given him the answer that he so desperately thought, that he was so desperately sought. So having heard of this new rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, who spoke with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees, he continued his pursuit of his answer to this question by seeking Jesus out and asking him, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Before we continue, I want each of us to ask him or herself, are we like the rich young ruler in any way, particularly this way? Are we aware that there is a teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, whose ministry is having an impact in our culture? Are we zealous to learn more about him? Do we have a sense that we are lacking something, even knowing all of these things? So often in our culture, if you ever engage with people uh, that are uh, maybe not believers or don't trust uh, Christ for eternal life, they might have some sense of who he is and maybe even appreciate um, who he is and what he taught, um, but they don't have a deep sense of who he is. Once you get communicating with certain folks, 95% of the time, if you ever get to the uh, topic of heaven, they will uh, let you know that they believe they're going to heaven. And the reason that they believe they're going to heaven is because somehow the good that they have done has outweighed the bad that they have done. It's a common perception in our culture. Now, I'm not entirely sure why, other than we'd like to believe that we're maybe a little better than the guy next door. But that is a common perception. And all of that perception is completely wiped out in this story in Mark 10. So verse 18, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? That's a deep question. Why do you call me good? No one is good, that is, but one, God. I have heard all sorts of representatives of different cults and different religions using this verse taken all by itself, as a proof text trying to show that Jesus is explicitly stating here that he is not God because there is only one that is good, and that is God. From Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses to Muslims, this verse has been used as a proof text for their aberrant position. To be honest, I am actually astounded at the lack of any sort of insight these people show regarding this short story. If anything, this story demonstrates exactly the opposite. The more I read this story this week, the more I was convinced that Jesus is trying to point to anyone that would read this story, I am the Lord God Jehovah. 
I am the lawgiver. I am the creator. That's what he's desperately trying to get this young man to believe. And the young man won't. And so many others that pluck this one verse out of the text won't see what Jesus is saying in the whole story. But I hope this morning we will be honest with the text. Jesus is loudly proclaiming his equality with God, at least for anyone with ears to hear. We'll see how just a little bit further on. The brief lesson we'll take from this is that we should never pull a single verse out of its context to fit our preconceived notions of what the scripture teaches. That's a mistake. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. And Jesus could just as well have added, and you don't believe that is who I am, do you? You have a somewhat lower view of me, don't you? You call me rabbi, teacher, and that's true. But if that's all that I am, I cannot possibly meet your need for eternal life. If Jesus is just a great moral teacher, or a good man with deep insight, or an example for us to follow, if that's all he is, he cannot meet our need for eternal life. And so if we think these lower things of Christ, we've missed who he truly is, and eternal life remains out of our touch. Verse 19, Jesus answers, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. How many of us, if we were approached as Jesus was here, someone coming up, running up to you and saying, how do I inherit eternal life? How many of us would answer by saying, oh, you know the law. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, uh, honor your father and your mother, don't commit adultery. Off you go, great. And we would say, mm, that's not what I believe as a Christian, is it? I don't think I would answer the way Jesus did here. So what was Jesus doing here? Why would he answer like this? What are we missing, in other words? Was Jesus somehow teaching that a person can obtain eternal life by keeping the commandments? Is that what Jesus was teaching here? Of course not. That would run contrary to everything else we read in the scriptures regarding salvation. Jesus saw this young man's heart and was putting his finger right on the area of this man's deepest need. Jesus is pointing out to the young man that this young man did not know who he was actually confronting here. So rather than pointing out what the young man did not know, Jesus put his finger on what he did know. The commandments. Jesus quotes from arguably his favorite book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, probably from chapter 5 there, where the Ten Commandments are listed. Having said that, Let's look at the part of the Ten Commandments 
that Jesus did not quote. Jesus skipped over the first several commandments and then he started on the bottom part. But let's just go back to Deuteronomy 5 and see what Jesus missed in his quote. Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 6, and we'll just read 6 through 8. The word of God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's the part that Jesus left for now. And I think he did it to make a larger impact in the young man's mind. So, instead of quoting the part of the Ten Commandments that are more uh, inward, shall we say, Jesus quotes the part that is more outward, if, I, if you'll allow me to say that, at least in this young man's mind. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and your mother. And what is the young man's response to Jesus? This is audacious. Verse 20. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, listen to this. All these things I have kept from my youth. Now, I don't know what your answer would have been. Mine wouldn't have been this. He's saying he never lied from his youth to this day? <laughs> I don't know. We're beginning to get a glimpse now into the deeper part of this young man's heart, the way the Lord saw it. Can you imagine facing Jesus Christ and saying to him, you have perfectly kept the commandments from your youth? Ah, it looks like it's just you and me, Jesus. We're the only ones that were able to do it. Just you and me. This statement now betrays a couple of things about this young man's heart, and they are related. One, he is self-righteous. He believes it is his own righteousness that will secure his position before God. I've done all these good things, that's good enough. Two, he has a woefully low view of the law of God. In his view, outward obedience is enough to evade being a transgressor of the law, a sinner. And this flies in the face of the purpose of the law right from the very beginning when God first gave it. 
which was to reveal to man the holiness of God and our desperate need as sinners to flee to him for forgiveness and cleansing. This was an insight into the law of Moses that had been so neglected and forgotten that Jesus had to teach it again in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Let's read together verses 17 through 22 of Matthew 5. Jesus preaching here. Do not think. That's a commandment, by the way. That's why you should never take uh, God's uh, word out of context. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. I don't know about you, but I think that's a long time. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And then down to verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then let's look at what James says in his letter. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. For whoever shall keep the whole law, like this rich young ruler claimed to do, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, a sinner. That brings us to verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's, that's so wonderful. Loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come. Take up the cross and follow me. And this is where the hammer falls, isn't it? This young man gets an answer to his question that he never wanted to hear. In fact, it was the worst answer in his mind that he could have gotten. Further, furthermore, I dare say this is still not the answer that you and I would give if someone came to us asking how to obtain eternal life. Sell all you have, 
give the money to the poor and follow Jesus. But it was exactly what this rich young man needed to hear. And this is where we get back to the law of Moses. One of the laws of Moses we read just a few moments ago is this. You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, it's the first law. In his grace and his mercy, the text says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus points out to this young man that he had broken the first law. With his mouth, he claimed to worship God above all else. But when Jesus gave him the option of selling all his belongings and following him, he would not. He would not exchange his God of possessions for the true God of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. To this rich young man, his possessions were his God before and above all others. For this rich young man to sell all his belongings, giving all the proceeds to the poor and following Jesus would have demonstrated two things in his life had he done this. It would have demonstrated, number one, Jesus is God. And he would have acknowledged it. Jesus is God. Sell, sell your other God. Follow the true God of Israel, Jesus Christ. And number two, possessions and money were nothing compared to following Jesus. Brings us to our final verse. Told you I'd be quick. But he was sad at his word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is one of the most tragic verses in all the New Testament. This rich young man has an encounter with God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator and the sustainer of all things, he who is life and could have been for this young man eternal life. And given the choice between stuff and eternal life, he chooses stuff. And this is just as sad a testimony for this young man as it is for you and I and the hearts of all human beings. It is a sad testimony of the deceptive nature of the human heart. As human beings, we are tempted to choose instant gratification for short-term happiness over short-term discomfort for eternal reward. Folks, isn't that what sin always does? When you are tempted to sin, that temptation is always accompanied by promises of fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction, comfort, or whatever else you feel you need in your life at that moment. But sin always breaks its promises. Once you have yielded to temptation and committed sin, it mocks you and your hopes. It leaves you feeling empty, sorrowful, unfulfilled, and broken. And it does so without exception. Worse, and this is the part that, can I say it? 
This is the part that really ticks me off. It Sin comes to you again just a very short time later after mocking you to your face and in its sincerest tones offers you once again fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction, and comfort. This is precisely why, I love this when I learned this, this is precisely why a man named Charles Schultz who was a Christian man, he wrote the Peanuts comics. Now, most of you will be familiar with the Peanuts comics. Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Snoopy, who's my favorite, of course. But this is the principle that Charles Schultz had in mind every time Lucy would hold that football for Charlie Brown. Even in his last will and testament, Charles Schultz made a point of saying, no matter who takes over this legacy of mine of the Peanuts cartoon, never, ever, ever let Charlie Brown kick that football. Because sin never keeps its promises. Never, ever, ever. So no matter how often and how sincere the offer from Lucy, because you've all been there, Lucy is pretty convincing, isn't she? Come on, Charlie Brown. I know that I've pulled the ball away 4,683 times in a row, but come on. This one time, I'll hold the ball. I'll let you kick it. I promise you. And all of us watching the cartoon go, Maybe this time. I wonder if this time. She seems pretty sincere. Sin never lets you kick the ball. Sin never lets you kick the ball. It always pulls it away at the last possible moment, leaving you lying on your back, wondering why you trusted Lucy again. What would I like us to take into our communion service and into the days to come from this simple text, deep text? Just this, few lessons. Number one, not a single one of us is so righteous that we don't need to follow Jesus. Not a single one of us is so righteous that we don't need to follow Jesus. When we don't live in obedience to the Lord, we have put some other God in our lives ahead of him. We must be cleansed and follow him again. Number two, self-righteousness, although it can have an outward expression of cleanliness, is in Christ's eyes the vilest of sins. Sometimes we call it pride. Self-righteousness, in essence, is saying to Jesus, right to his face, you died on the cross for nothing. I can do it myself. What that ultimately means is that for a person to say that they think 
that they have eternal life because they have lived a pretty good life down here. They didn't steal. They didn't murder. They didn't commit adultery is an expression of the vilest of sins. It is a violation of the first commandment. And number three, even in this condition, Jesus looks at us and he loves us and he gives us the offer to follow him. For this rich young man, the outward expression of this faith in Christ would have been to abandon his gods, his possessions. It will look different for each one of us. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to point out whether we too have gods ahead of the one true God of Israel. This is why before communion, we encourage each person, and I'm going to encourage you this morning, to examine themselves, to see how much we are like this rich young ruler, that we might have a God ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to confess that and give it up. Sell it. Give the proceeds away. Have no part of it. And follow Jesus ahead of partaking. From here, we'll move into our communion service. I'll get my wife to bring my... Yeah, if you don't mind bringing that. Thank you. What will we do without our wives, men? Let's pray just to close this part of the worship time together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he puts his finger exactly on the areas of the lives of men that most need to be recognized. Thank you that it is in your grace and your mercy that you point out to us our failures. But thank you that it is in a greater grace and a greater mercy that you look at us and you love us and you offer to us once again to follow you. This morning I pray that you would by your spirit move in the hearts of your people to once again renew that desire to follow you in our hearts. But we recognize as well from this passage that it's not, that there are some prerequisites and that is we have to get rid of the other gods. We have to get rid of those other things in our lives that prevent us from following you, that obscure our vision of you leading. For many of us, it's possessions like it was in this text, but for many of us, it can be something else, something that takes priority in our lives. And I just ask in these few moments that we are bowing our hearts before you, that you would Put your finger on those gods that we harbor in our hearts. That you would give us the courage to confess them, turn from them, and follow Jesus once again. We thank you for your tremendous mercy 
that time after time, even though we fail over and over and over again, yet you, you still love us and you still plead with us to follow you. And I ask that you would give us the courage to do that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.